feel kind of like God. <laughs> and then this man with the devil on his hand came and took the hat. Free Britney. Free Britney. and voo dolls and all you vooties in between it is nick nobody savage and you are listening to dab to death i hope you enjoyed top five murderers in michigan episode where we counted down some of the worst of the worst that the wolverine state has to offer still a little confused about that state nickname but it's okay it's okay this week's episode is from fame to foul play when the limelight turns deadly That's right, as we all know, Hollywood has a dark side. And it's not just Hollywood, you know, it's it's sports, you know, music, it's it's pretty much any kind of a public figure entertainment industry. Pretty much any anybody that is in the public eye, um, you know, it it, there's there's a lot of unfortunate things that, that either happen to or because of some of these people. So we thought we would take a look at, you know, some of the instances where, like I said, where the limelight turns deadly. Before we get into fame to foul play, let's take a minute to talk about what I'm smoking on. Alright, this time I've got some Paper Planes Venom OG Live Resin. I want to say batter, but it's got like some diamond chunks in it, and it, it was very molasses like when I when I uh dished it up but then for some reason it kind of looks like it battered a little bit so I don't know I don't know what it is Venemoji smells good looks good tastes pretty good too and then I've got some of the rosé live resin and uh some gushers shatter it's like some older shatter but um I I found some of it laying around and I was like, holy shit, I forgot about this stuff, you know. It was actually a a preferred preferred gardens collaboration. So it's pretty good. It's just completely forgot it existed for a while. Oh, okay. Or it's, you know, all over the inside of the fucking parchment. Or mylar. Um so yeah, maybe maybe not maybe not the shatter then. Alrighty. Well, things are not going the way I had anticipated so far. Uh so I've got the Venom OG, I've got the rose. Um I had some shatter to feature. Oh, one thing I, I would love to tell you guys about. Uh, so recently, a coworker of mine found this video on Instagram of this life-changing device right here. And it is uh, from Hamilton Devices. It is called the Starship. This beast of a battery lets you smoke three carts at a time. It also comes with three coils, so you could do... You know, for example, the first time I used the coils, I did a thing of shatter, 
a thing of live resin batter, and then a thing of diamonds. So you can kind of mix and match, do whatever you want. So you could do like two carts and a coil, two coils and a cart, three carts. And then there's dummy plugs. So if you only want to do like one or two carts, you can plug the third one or the second, you know, however you want to do it. You got options. You got plenty of options. And I will say this thing hits like a beast. And this isn't a sponsorship or brand deal or anything like that. Although I would love to, to work out some kind of a brand deal for you guys. Because if I could get you a discount on this thing, I would love to do that for you. Because if you're anything like me, you like to get high. But yeah, if you're anything like me, you really like to smoke and you've got a bit of a high tolerance. And, uh, you know, my coworker got tired of sitting there seeing me hit four pens at a time, three or four pens at a time. So he's like, dude, you just need to get this. And I did. Like the, the second I saw the video, I was like, need this. Ordered it, got it, love it. So, HamiltonDevices.com. Um, check it out. Like I said, it's called the Starship. It's uh, it's only 90 bucks, but you can put it on a payment plan. So that's pretty dope, because that's what I did. $25 out the door. You know. Uh, I think I'm going to go ahead and hit this thing real quick, because I've got it on. I've got it in my hand. And I uh, just want you all to... Hear how much of a fucking rip this thing can get. Oh, it also comes with a really cool bong attachment. So you can uh, connect it to your bong instead of hitting it like a vape. You've got, like I said, you've got so many options with this thing. And again, not sponsored, but would like to be. Jesus. All right, well. <coughs> I've got like three different carts on that thing right now. Oh, God. Whew. And you can feel it. Oh, man. Yeah, that was a, that was a, sef- a seven-second hit. That's the most you can do on there is seven seconds. <coughs> And most people can't hang with the seven seconds, so. But like I said, if you really, uh, really want one now, I would recommend going to Hamilton Devices. If not, maybe wait a, wait a little bit and see if I can get an affiliate link or some kind of a brand deal. <coughs> or some kind of a brand deal worked out to where <coughs> I can get you guys a discount. So, stay tuned for that. <coughs> oh fuck! All right, I guess I'm just gonna go ahead and jump into this. Ah, uh, since I just took a dab, technically. Woo! 
Alrighty. <clears throat> the first case of famous foul play is actually a very recent one. If the name Ryan Grantham sounds familiar, then you might be familiar with some of his acting work. The young Canadian-born actor first began his career at the rather young age of nine years old. Grantham is most known for his roles as Rodney in the movie version of Diary of a Wimpy Kid, as well as playing 10-year-old Kevin in the 2011 film Liz. He also played bit parts in shows like Supernatural, iZombie, and Riverdale. However, there might be another reason that his name sounds familiar to you. Especially since March 31st, 2020, when Ryan Grantham walked up behind his 64-year-old mother, Barbara Waite, while she played the piano in their home, and shot her in the back of the head. To make this seemingly unprovoked attack all the more strange, Grantham had not only rehearsed the murder of his mother many times, but had recorded a confession shortly after the murder, even showing the corpse of his mother in the video. The next day, Ryan loaded his car with guns, ammunition, 12 Molotov cocktails, and camping supplies. He then set off with directions to Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's home in Ottawa, where he lives with his wife and children. <clears throat> his mission was clear. He intended to assassinate the Prime Minister. Fortunately for the Trudeau family, Ryan Grantham's behavior got even stranger from there. Suddenly, without explanation, he turned around drove to the Vancouver police headquarters, and confessed to what he had done. Basically, he just walked in and was like, I shot my mom. Just like that, just, oh yeah, I shot my mom. And they're just like, uh, well, can you put these handcuffs on for us, sir? Grantham claims that he only murdered his mother to prevent her from having to bear witness to the acts of violence that he was planning on carrying out. Somehow, I feel like there was a little more at play here than that. You know, just a little bit. Sure enough, during the sentencing hearing, which as far as I know is still ongoing, it would be revealed by two psychiatric reports that in the months leading up to this senseless act, that Ryan was suffering from clinical depression and had experienced urges to hurt himself and commit acts of violence. It was believed that this further escalated feelings of guilt and self-hatred over his mother possibly discovering that he had stopped going to his classes at Simon Fraser University. And of course, no report would be complete without stating that he had a cannabis use disorder. Dun dun dun. Yeah, sure, blame the fucking weed. They always blame the fucking weed. You know what I what I really think is that if more of these people smoked weed, you know, at, at least frequently and without being looked down upon for smoking weed, then maybe they wouldn't be killing people. <clears throat> Just saying. Ryan Grantham went on to plead guilty to second degree murder, which carries an automatic life sentence. 
you know, I can't help but notice that there's like a bit of a difference in phrasing here between the United States and our neighbors to the north. Because like here it's a mandatory minimum sentence. And there it's automatic sentence. Ooh. Okay. Mandatory. Automatic. Mandatory. Automatic. You see? You see? Just the word. Just changing one word makes it sound way different. I mean, you're still going to prison for life. But it sounds better. Because it's automatic. It's not mandatory. It's automatic. Anyway. Way off topic. Additionally, even though people in Canada who are convicted of second-degree murder are often granted parole as early as 10 years into their sentences, the Crown is requesting that he be ineligible for parole for 17 to 18 years. Ryan is now 24 years old, which means that if the Crown's request is granted, Ryan is now 24 years old which means that if the Crown's request is granted, that the earliest he will be eligible to be paroled is 41. Considering this was the cold and unprovoked murder of his own mother, I have a feeling that the chances of that happening are... While the death of Barbara Waite was a senseless tragedy at the hands of her own son, The next tale of famous foul play is the devastating death of a beloved child star at the hands of someone she also should have been able to trust, her father. At only 10 years old, little Judith Barcy was just starting out in life. Her acting career, however, had been going strong for about five years already, constantly driven forward by her mother Maria. Judith's first major role was in the television miniseries adaptation of the controversial true crime book, Fatal Vision, which is based on the 1970 murders of the wife and children of Army Captain Jeffrey McDonald. Apparently, this book has like an entire controversy around it itself, um, just in that uh, apparently this, this Army guy, you know, when he was arrested for the murders and he was on trial... He contacted this this guy and was like, "Hey, I want you to write. I want you to write a book, and uh, you know about my innocence, like proving my innocence. You know, I want you to come and investigate and like solve this and like figure out that it wasn't me." Plot twist. Homeboy comes out, starts investigating, starts to write in his little book, you know. But like, part of the thing was is he's like, "Look, I'm gonna write what I'm gonna whatever I find. Like, you know, no matter what, I'm writing what I find." He was like, yeah, sure, whatever. I'm innocent. So then, as dude's investigating and he's, like, looking into it, he kind of realizes that, like, mm, you know, it's looking like Homeboy actually did it. You know? So he writes the book that he fucking did it. Because that's what he found and that's what he... That, he fucking did it. All right? So, anyway, you can look into that controversy, you can look into the book and the series, and I think they did a movie or whatever. But moving on. Uh, This does mean that, hauntingly enough, the role that she played in Fatal Vision was that of one of the McDonald children. Children who were murdered by their own father. 
Just four years later, in 1988, things seemed to be going great for Judith Barcy. She had landed a role in the 1987 film Jaws the Revenge, and had even lended her voice to a few animated features. Arguably, the most famous role she got, and the one that I will always associate with her, is that of Ducky in the 1988 animated film The Land Before Time. Hello! By this time, right as Judith was starting the fourth grade, she was earning an estimated $100,000 a year, which is equivalent to roughly $230,000 now. And that's one hell of a paycheck for a 10-year-old. The money that Judith was bringing in was able to help her parents buy a three-bedroom home in the West Hills of Los Angeles. It looked like the better life that Maria wanted for her daughter was within reach, but the brighter that things got for them on the outside, the darker they got for them at home. Josef and Maria Barsi were both Hungarian immigrants who had fled the country separately in 1956, and then met at a restaurant in California where Maria was a server. While Maria grew to adore the film stars of Hollywood and decided that she wanted that life for her daughter, Yosef slipped deeper into his alcoholism and became increasingly abusive towards both Maria and Judith. In addition to the bouts of physical violence, Yosef would often threaten to kill them even admitting his homicidal urges to his friends on several occasions. And yet, no one chose to do anything. This guy's like, yes, I think, I, I think I'm going to kill my wife. And they're like, what? And he goes, yes, I think I kill wife. Yes, I think I'm going to kill my wife. And then they're like, well, well, shit, like, dude, if you kill your wife, what about your daughter? And he goes... I must kill her too. It's fucked up, dude. It's fucked up. But nobody did anything. Nobody, 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 nobody. Nobody thought to fucking intervene. Nobody thought to step in. (sighs) Anyway, as the abuse intensified, signs of what was going on at home began to bleed into Judith's life in the limelight. She began to exhibit physical indicators of the stressors she was going through such as gaining weight and compulsively plucking out her eyelashes and even the cat's whiskers. Um, this is known as trichotillomania. It's you know, where you compulsively pull out your own hair. Or in this case, the hair of your cat, for some reason. That poor cat. As if these signs weren't enough, Judith admitted to a friend of hers that one time Yosef threw pots and pans at her, striking her in the face, resulting in a nosebleed. Shortly after that, in May of 1988, Judith had a complete breakdown in front of her agent, Ruth. Ruth decided that it was time to take Judith to a child psychologist who identified the signs of abuse and trauma for what they were and notified Child Protective Services, who did basically fuck all about it. Again, somebody really could have intervened here. Somebody could have stopped this entire tragedy from happening. But they did nothing. Now, we must all fear evil men. But there is another kind of evil 
which we must fear most. And that is the indifference of good men. Then, the LA Times reported on July 28, 1988, that three bodies had been found in a home in the West Hills, in what appeared to be a murder-suicide. An accelerant, most likely gasoline, had been poured on two of the bodies, and the third was found dead in the garage from a self-inflicted bullet wound. The bodies would go on to be identified as those of Judith, Maria, and Yosef Barzi. Barsi. Sorry. Alright, I think it is time for a dab. Oh, the new dab rig arrived! Yay! I took off the applause sound clip or else I would play that right now. But I tried to be smart and program my sound clips, but they didn't work. Shocker. Anyway, so I think I'm going to do a dab. A little dab rooney Dabrowski. Dabronski. I don't, I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. Woo! I smell good. Alright, so I have here the Rosé Live Resin. Um, I'm going to call it like a honey crystal. Yeah, I think I'm going to call this like more of a honey crystal. It's it's kind of almost got like a, a sugary consistency to it. Like very granule, granular. Smells really good, though. But yeah, I'm definitely happy with the new dab rig. It was was worth the wait. It it took a little longer than I was thinking it would, but I'm happy with it. It's got this really cool spiral function in the middle, so like you can watch the water like spin down after you're done taking a hit. Anyway. Jesus. It's definitely got like a floral taste to it, but it's also got a little, almost a little pepperiness, you know? Hmm. (coughs) 
<laughs> okay, according to the genetics here, Rose is a uh, Skittles, uh, an offspring of Skittles, apparently. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, I think I'm going to start uh, actually, you know, talking about the strains I'm smoking a little more. Um, you know, so it can kind of educate people, I guess. You know, that way it's not just me just getting high. <laughs> I mean, I, I appreciate me just getting high, but, you know, education. Yeah. That is tasty. Rosé was selected for its heavy resin production, purple coloration, and sweet floral aroma. This strain is rich in THC as well as myrcene and pinene terpenes, which build a complex chemical profile that won Rosé second place in the 2017 Emerald Cup. Well, there you have it. I like it. I approve. Let's return to the story. Or return to our topic at hand. Now, if you are anywhere from your late 20s to your mid 30s, there's a very good chance that this sound just brought back instant childhood memories. Well, there's also a chance that you just thought of another, but less wholesome memory related to the Power Rangers. And that would be in 2015, when actor Ricardo Medina Jr. was arrested for killing his roommate with a sword. Medina is most famous for his role as Cole Evans, the fearless leader and Red Lion Ranger on TV's Power Rangers Wild Force in 2002. Other than that, he landed a couple of appearances on shows like ER and CSI Miami. Before returning to the Power Rangers universe in 2011 for Power Rangers Samurai, only this time as a villain named Decker. Fast forward to January 31st, 2015. When 911 operators received a call from a man saying that his roommate, 38-year-old Joshua Sutter, had been stabbed with a sword in their home. The person making the 911 call was Ricardo Medina Jr., who ironically enough, was also the person who stabbed Josh Sutter. Paramedics arrived and rushed Sutter to the hospital, but it was too late and he was pronounced dead upon arrival. The next day, Medina was arrested and held on a $1 million bail, but the district attorney wanted more time to build their case and allow authorities to conduct their investigation, so he was released two days later. 
since they can only hold somebody for 48 hours without officially charging them with anything. Medina was claiming that the incident was purely self-defense, but the DA wasn't so sure. But why? Ricardo Medina had moved into the home in Green Valley, just west of Palmdale, California, just two months before the fatal events that would claim his new roommate's life. Naturally, as two people who are newly cohabitating a shared space are prone to do, Medina and Sutter found things that they disagreed upon from time to time, and maybe even argued about. January 31st was one of those times. Ricardo Medina, who had just celebrated his 36th birthday a week before, invited his girlfriend over to spend some time with him at his new house. Apparently, for whatever reason, Joshua Sutter seemed to have an issue with this, and the two quickly fell into a rather heated argument over the matter. After the altercation began to get physical, Medina and his girlfriend retreated to his bedroom in an attempt to get away from the situation. Sutter, however, was not done with Medina and followed them to the room, attempting to force open the door. It was at this point that Medina reached for the nearest weapon he could find, which just so happened to be like a massive double-edged sword. Like, massive. And like, it was described as uh, a Conan the Barbarian style sword, so I don't know if it was like a replica of Conan the Barbarian's sword, or if it was just like a very big barbarian sword. But either way, it was a big fucking sword. Then, as Joshua Sutter was pushing his way through the bedroom door to fight him, Ricardo Medina stabbed him several times in the abdomen with the sword, effectively ending the fight, but unfortunately ending his life as well. Prosecutors questioned if the level of Medina's response was an appropriate one or not. After all, he did stab Sutter several times with a fairly large sword, and as a part of his roles in the Power Rangers series, he was trained in hand-to-hand combat, so it stands within reason that he should have been able to fend Sutter off without killing him. After nearly a year, Medina was arrested again on January 14, 2016, this time under the charge of first-degree murder in the death of Joshua Sutter. Facing the possibility of life in prison with a chance for parole after 26 years, Ricardo Medina Jr. pled down and entered a guilty plea to one count of voluntary manslaughter on March 16, 2017. Two weeks later, he was sentenced to the maximum sentence of six years, and has since been released in 2020, according to one of his former Wild Force castmates, Jack Guzman. But yeah, it's kind of unclear what he's doing since then. Um, yeah, I was reading some like fan pages and like a lot of count or some comments about stuff like this and uh, or <clears throat> about the situation. And a lot of people in the the Power Rangers fandom uh, honestly believe that you know it was self defense that he's you know he didn't intentionally try to kill the guy. And I, I'm gonna probably go with that because like you know I don't think anybody because like you you took him to the like you called 911 you know if you were trying to kill him i'm pretty sure you would have just like hid the body or some shit i don't know i'm not 
you know, killing people. Anyway. But yeah, like, uh, I know that a lot of uh, people want him to start doing, like, the... Apparently there's, like, a whole Power Rangers convention they do. Morphicon or something like that. And uh, they, they want him to come back to that. So... If you're out there, if you're listening, Ricardo Medina, um, the nerds want you back. All right. I was going to add Chris Benoit to this list. Uh, If you're not familiar with who he is, he was the Canadian pro wrestler who murdered his wife and son before taking his own life. Um, But upon further research, I feel that, like, you know, that could honestly be an episode on its own just because it deals a lot with, like, steroid abuse and uh, just, like, the whole professional wrestling industry as a whole. It's, like, you know, it's got a history of, like, some violent shit. Um, So, I mean, I might just do its own episode at some point, but if I choose not to, uh, I will do a part two of the fame to foul play episode sometime down the line. So I could include him there. So instead I decided to talk about the tragic ending of the lives of Catherine Davis and Johnny Lewis. Now, if you are familiar with this story, I ask that you let me explain myself before you go saying, but Nick, Johnny Lewis killed that poor woman. Spoiler alert. How is this death a tragedy? Well, considering the fact that Lewis was a bright young star on the rise, and that after sustaining a head injury and slowly spiraling out of control, he did not accept the help that he desperately needed, I think it is fair to say that this story is a tragedy on all parts. Catherine Davis was an 81-year-old woman living in Hollywood, California, and she was well-known in the area for running a beautiful bed and breakfast known as the Writer's Villa. The villa was a sanctuary for up-and-coming writers, directors, and performers, a safe haven away from the dirt and distraction of the outside world. Celebrities such as Chris Parnell, Thomas Jane, Parker Posey, and Paula Poundstone have all called the villa home, for a brief period of time. Actually, I found out that Val Kilmer did too. That's pretty cool. I like Val Kilmer. He was a pretty good Batman. Pretty sure my sister would disagree with me on that one. But oh well. It's not his fault he couldn't move his neck. Anyway, another one of those celebrities was 28-year-old Jonathan Kendrick Lewis, better known as Johnny. Lewis had first stayed at the writer's villa in 2009, seeking a quiet place to work on his novel, but had returned again in 2012 after falling on much harder times. Johnny Lewis was born on October 29, 1983, in Los Angeles, California, and was the middle child of Michael and Devona Lewis. He was brought up in and around Scientology. No, God! No, God, please, no! 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 And was actually a practicing Scientologist for most of his life. As Johnny was graduating high school, he decided that he wanted to pursue a career in acting, and so he left home. His first acting roles were in his late teens on shows such as Boston Public in 2000, The Guardian in 2001, and American Dreams in 2002. 
Johnny Lewis first broke through into films in 2004 when he appeared alongside Disney star Hilary Duff in Raise Your Voice. Terrible movie. I like Hilary Duff, but terrible movie. Then, in 2005, when he landed a supporting role in Miramax Films' Underclassmen, starring Nick Cannon. Oh, and I guess it's also worth mentioning that around this time, you know, in around 2005, that he dated this, like, you know, small pop star named Katy Perry, you know, but no big deal. Lewis then went on to appear on several other shows, including The O.C. and Smallville, before getting the role that gained him the most recognition, that of motorcycle club prospect Kip Halfsack Epps in the series Sons of Anarchy in 2008. I honestly fucking loved that show, watched every single episode. I have this like giant tapestry that's a Sons of Anarchy logo. I used to have this lamp that was like the Grim Reaper. It was like a, or it was like an M16 with a scythe. And I, I anyway, yeah, I, I get into shows and then I buy a bunch of shit and most of it just sits in a closet. So <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, despite his image on the show, Lewis was actually more of a poet than a prospect. He was known for his love of philosophy and poetry, and he never drank or used any form of drug. In 2009, Lewis learned that his girlfriend was pregnant and decided that it was time for him to end his stay on Sons of Anarchy after only two seasons. He had been considering making the change anyways, as he felt the storyline was becoming too violent and that he would rather take time to start writing his novel. Sadly, things only went downhill from there. Lewis and his girlfriend split up shortly after the birth of their daughter in 2010, leading to a messy custody battle that Lewis would ultimately lose. Then, in October of 2011, Johnny Lewis was in a pretty bad motorcycle accident, sustaining what many believed to be a traumatic brain injury. Though the doctors recommended an MRI, Johnny repeatedly refused the tests. He began to exhibit strange and illogical behaviors after this, but despite his father's best efforts, he refused any psychiatric help as well. Soon after, he started to become randomly violent, even breaking into the home of one of his parents' neighbors and assaulting the two men who attempted to confront him. Lewis was sent to the Twin Towers jail in Los Angeles after the assault. However, while he was there, he smashed his head into a concrete wall and attempted to jump from a second-floor walkway, causing him to be sent to a psychiatric ward. It was after being released from one of these now-many stints in jail that his father arranged accommodations for him at the writer's villa, hoping that the tranquil and familiar atmosphere would help his son. Unfortunately, that was not the case. On September 26, 2012, a neighbor of Catherine Davis's called the police after Lewis had attacked him and a house painter before climbing over the fence like Spider-Man. That's a quote, Spider-Man. They said he literally was like, Spider-Man hop. Anyway, Uh, they also reported that they had heard screams coming from the villa. When police arrived, they found Johnny Lewis lying dead on the driveway, having either jumped or fallen off the roof. And more disturbingly, the body of Catherine Davis in her bedroom, 
her head smashed in with the hammer. Yeah, no, this guy had basically lost his shit. Um, nobody knows exactly like what provoked the attack itself. Uh, there was something about like him shutting off the power because he just like he was doing all kinds of weird shit leading up to this in the months leading up to this. Like lots of assaults on people. Um, basically, he was like he would go and like turn off the power at his parents' house and shit. And so it's believed that he had gone and shut off the power the night before and that she had like scolded him. And so he was all pissed off about that. But. Regardless, it was um, it was a very sad situation because, you know, clearly it was the, the head injury that triggered everything, you know, uh, because it triggered a complete change in personality. Johnny started doing drugs. He started he would slip into a British accent randomly. He, he was just, he was violent randomly, you know, for no reason. Uh, there was definitely, it was definitely something wrong with him. And like the doctors tried to get him to take the MRI. His father tried to get him to take an MRI or do an MRI. And he just kept refusing. And uh, I feel like that's kind of the, one of those situations where you need to step in and intervene to say, like to save somebody from themselves, you know, like, but I don't know. <sighs> that was kind of a downer. I think I need to do a dab. All right, so next up is the Venom OG. Let me pull it up here on the good old leafly.com. I know it's not like the definitive source on everything cannabis, but whatever. It'll work for what I need it for. Oh, wow. Okay, what the hell happened to this? Ooh. Okay, Venom. Venom, Venom, Venom. Venom OG, also known as Venom and Venom OG Kush, is a indica-dominant hybrid. Wouldn't that be an indica-dominant hybrid? Proofread your shit, guys. Come on. Is an indica-dominant hybrid marijuana strain made by, by crossing Poison OG and Rare Dankness number one. It's marked by dense forest green buds with a tangle of bright orange hairs. Venemoji has an aroma of skunk, pine, lemon, and diesel. That's a great fucking combination of smells in my opinion. I actually oddly do like the smell of skunk. I don't know why. Not like what if it's like spraying me. That you know, That's a different story. But like if I happen to be driving through an area and it's like, oh, somebody ran over a skunk. I don't mind the smell, you know, and then diesel like, Oh, gasoline. Oh, I don't know what it is about that smell, but I just, I love it. And like, uh, paving tar, like roofing tar, any of that kind of shit like that smell too. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so basically venom is a good indica. So, you know, obviously you want to use it if you are having trouble sleeping or if you, you know, just want a good relaxing strain, um, something that has a lot of good medical benefits, you know, I'm going to do a pretty large dab of this stuff. Cause I love this shit. Do, 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 get in there. 
Oh yeah, that is definitely a fat-ass diamond. Okay, so yeah, there's definitely diamonds in this. Ooh. You can definitely taste the pine. Definitely have to say that I like that a lot better than the rose, which is weird because I like anything that's Skittles related usually, but just having that super gassy, like, <clears throat> oh, that super gassy venom. Oh, yeah, love that. All right, just gonna wrap this up with the last story here. When it comes to the idea of rebelling against the norm or fighting the system, few things are as iconic as the punk rock movement, especially that of the 1970s. And when it comes to that era of punk music, even fewer names are as iconic as that of the Sex Pistols. Formed in 1975, the Sex Pistols are considered the initiators of the punk movement in the UK even if many now consider them to be nothing more than a bunch of sellouts. Sell out with me, oh yeah, sell out with me tonight. We are not here to talk about the Sex Pistols, however, as much as I would like to, but just one member of the band whose name lives on in infamy, maybe even more so than his bandmates. That man is John Simon Ritchie, also known as John Beverly, but better known by his stage name, Sid Vicious. Born on May 10, 1957 in southeast London, John Simon Ritchie was the only child of John and Anne Ritchie. His mother had dropped out of school to join the British Army, where she would meet John's father, John. John Sr. was a guard at Buckingham Palace and a semi-professional trombone player in the London jazz scene. And he basically bailed out the first chance he got, leaving Anne and baby John in Ibiza, of all fucking places, where he had promised to meet them. Yeah, basically, he was just like, oh, go on ahead, you know, just just move on to Ibiza without me and it'll be fine, I'll meet you there. We'll raise the little toy, it'll be fine. And he never showed up. Now she's fucking stuck in Ibiza with a little baby. You know how she had to get to get by? She sold weed. That's right. She had to sell some fucking weed, man. Which, I don't know how hard that is to do over there, but still. The two returned to England with the help of the British Embassy and bounced from place to place, mostly due to his mother's addiction to drugs. Uh, his mother did briefly marry a guy named uh, Christopher Beverly, I believe, and that's where John adopted the last name Beverly. But 
moving right along. Do, 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 do. In fact, she was so into her addiction that by 1973, she didn't even notice that John was going to a school for problem children and had adopted the name Sid Vicious, a moniker gifted to him by future bandmate John Lydon, a.k.a. Johnny Rotten. After Lydon went on to form the Sex Pistols along with Steve Jones, Glenn Matlock, and Paul Cook, Vicious co-founded a punk band called The Flowers of Romance, along with The Clash co-founder Keith Levine and Viv Albertine, who would later go on to join The Slits. The band never released any music, but several of their songs went on to be used by the bands that each member ended up with. And of course, the band that Vicious would end up with was none other than the Sex Pistols. In 1977, the band announced that bassist Glenn Matlock would be leaving the band, with singer Johnny Rotten claiming that he was being kicked out simply because he liked the Beatles. You know, this wasn't really the case. Um, you know, there was a lot of tension between Matlock and Rotten, and uh, this was actually spurred on by their manager. He wanted there to be a lot of like angst and tension to like promote their image, you know. They were so edgy. They had to be edgy. They had to be edgy all the time. Ultra edgy. If you're not edgy, you're not in. Anyway, sorry. But anyway, so Matlock left the band, and he was being replaced by Sid Vicious. And this was despite the fact that Sid Vicious knew jack shit about playing bass guitar. Uh, the the band, the what he, he played, uh, what did he play? In The Flowers of Romance. I think he played fucking saxophone or some shit. So anyway. 1977 was a big year for Sid and the Sex Pistols. Which, if he was the front man of the band, I think that would have been a great name for the band. Now introducing Sid and the Sex Pistols. Thank you, thank you. We're Sid and the Sex Pistols. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> so 1977 was a big year for Sid and the Sex Pistols. The band was signed and dropped by AM Records. Their song God Save the Queen was banned in England. God save the Queen! The fascist regime! Actually, pretty much most of their music like was banned, you know, uh, after that incident. So yeah, their song, God Save the Queen, was banned in England, and their debut and technically only album, Never Mind the Bullocks, Here's the Sex Pistols, became a UK number one, as well as a staple of any good punk music collection. And this was honestly no thanks to Vicious, who could not play well and was often in the hospital because of hepatitis, probably due to his drug use. So there's that. 1977 was also the year that Sid Vicious met Nancy Spungin. I never look like Bobby. Bobby doesn't have bruises. Uh, Nancy was a groupie from America living in London and supporting herself by selling drugs and working as a topless dancer. Initially, Nancy had set her sights on Sex Pistols frontman Johnny Rotten, but shortly after meeting Vicious, the two became practically inseparable. 
This, however, drove the rest of the band crazy, as they really did not like Nancy. And I mean, like, a lot. Like, a lot, a lot. You see, in addition to having a pretty serious heroin habit, Nancy Spungen also had a history of psychological problems. Needless to say, the relationship between Sid and Nancy was far from being a healthy one. The dysfunctional duo's energies seemed to feed off of each other, and their drug use only worsened as time went on. Other members of the band tried to get between Sid and Nancy, though unsuccessfully. Singer Johnny Rotten attempted to convince Vicious to break things off with Nancy, and the band's manager, Malcolm McLaren, even went so far as to try and have her kidnapped and forced onto a plane back to the United States. Like, that's how much they did not like her. McLaren did manage to have Nancy banned from the Sex Pistols' 1978 U.S. tour, however, but all this did was piss off Vicious and cause him to act out even more than usual during the tour. At one of their shows, he even smashed his bass guitar over the head of one of the fans in the crowd. He felt like the guy was antagonizing him, so he was just like, Fuck you, buddy. In addition to Vicious's violent behavior, mounting tensions between the members of the band would cut the tour short after only two weeks. The final historic show on January 14th was in San Francisco at the Winterland Ballroom. At the end of the show, Vicious famously said, quote, Ever get the feeling you've been cheated? End quote. And just like that, the Sex Pistols were no more. The next nine months were a whirlwind of drug abuse and chaotic performances for Sid and Nancy, with Spongen acting as Vicious's manager and occasionally backing him up on vocals. The two wound up in New York, moving into room 100 of the Hotel Chelsea, and this is where Nancy Spongen would be murdered, allegedly at the hands of Sid Vicious. On October 11, 1978, Sid and Nancy hosted a party in their room at the Chelsea. Vicious got extremely high at the beginning of the party, taking 30 Tuanol tablets, uh, which is a now discontinued barbiturate. So there's that. So he took 30 of those things and passed the fuck out while the party went on without him. At 11 o'clock the next morning, hotel staff found Nancy Spungen dead on the bathroom floor from a stab wound to the stomach. Sid Vicious was found wandering the halls in a dazed state, mumbling about how he had killed Nancy, a confession he would repeat again to police, but then would later recant, claiming that he didn't actually remember anything from the night. Vicious was arrested for murder, especially since the murder weapon was identified as a hunting knife that Nancy had given to Sid a few days prior. Sid Vicious was released on bail, and the next few months were an absolute roller coaster, with Vicious attempting suicide, getting into even more legal trouble for the assault of Todd Smith, and then finally overdosing on heroin and quaaludes on February 1st, 1979. It looks like we will never know if Sid was vicious enough to kill. Although it is widely believed that he was innocent because um, everybody was like, dude, he was passed the fuck out. Like he was high as shit and passed out all night. 
And this party just kept going on without him. And there was like people coming and going in and out of the apart or in and out of their room. And like, you know, so it's, it's believed by many that, uh, basically Nancy caught somebody trying to steal some money from them and that she was stabbed because they kept the knife and the money in this drawer or something like that. I don't know. Cause like when he did first talk to the cops, he did say like he had stabbed her during an argument and then he's like, well, I stabbed her, but I didn't mean to kill her. And then it, it was just, it was all very weird. It was all very strange. But like I said, we'll never get to know the true answer of what happened. All right. Well, that was from fame to foul play. And uh, like I said, he, at some point I might do a part two of that, you know, revisit or not, not revisit, but like, uh, you know, talk about some other misfortunes that have befallen some of Hollywood's or, uh, you know, I lost my train of thought, but whatever. Um, yeah, so I'll probably do a, a part two at some point and talk about some of other, or some of the other misfortunes that have befallen some famous people, um, or befallen other people because of famous people. So works both ways. I really don't know where I'm going with that anymore. So thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you have any feedback on this or any other episode, or if you just have a topic you would like me to cover, <clears throat> send an email to feedback at dabtodeath.com. Or you can just message me on any of the social medias at dabtodeath. Unless you're on Instagram, then it's at dabtodeathpodcast. Please rate and review as that would really help me out and I would really appreciate it. Thank you all again for helping me get past 500 downloads, hoping for another 500 more, and beyond. Other than that, stay tuned for next week. Oh, also, I would like to address the um, the posting schedule. I'm going to modify it a little bit as uh, I'm having issues keeping up with it. In a certain sense, I think it's just the burning urbans. The burning urbans might be taking up um, a little more energy than I had anticipated. So I think what I'm going to do is the burning urbans are going to change to uh, twice a month. So it's only going to be every other week that I release one of those. And those will be released on Tuesdays. And then... The Dab to Death episodes will switch over to Fridays, but will remain a weekly show. So, stay tuned. Working on providing a consistent flow of episodes for you guys, because I know it's probably frustrating when you're just like, yeah, I'm into this podcast, and you listen to a few episodes, and then it's like a month before another one comes out, and then you're like, yeah, and then it's like, they're, they're consistent for a couple weeks, and then it's like, they're gone for a couple weeks, and then I'm going to try and stop doing that, I swear. Swear. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, thank you all for listening. Be careful out there, because you... Ow, son of a bitch! Anyways, thank you all for listening, and until next time, be careful out there, because you never know when you might get dabbed to death.